Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Alright, hello everyone, we are back with another episode. Always excited to be here. I'm very lucky to have my guest, Dr. Todd Sanford. Todd Sanford is a board member for the Ocean First Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to ocean conservation through research and education, and he currently works as a senior research associate with Aspen Global Change Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to furthering scientific understanding of the Earth system science, and he also works as an independent scientific consultant. So Todd, thank you so much for being here this week. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation, Ethan. Looking forward to the conversation. As as am I, and as and as we've we've seen over the weeks, we really need to be having these discussions. But I always love to just get the show started by getting a little background on who you are, whether you want to talk about your PhD or how you kind of moved to Boulder, anything you'd like to, to mention. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of a long and winding road, I guess. Um, I'm originally from, was born in Kentucky, and 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 lived in Indiana as well. So uh, I came to Boulder in August of '97 for graduate school. I was you know, looking around the, the country at different grad schools and came for my visit to Boulder and did a hike up Green Mountain and I was kind of sold at that point. Um, it also helped they had a pretty good program and what I wanted to go into. Um, so I got a PhD in physical chemistry here at CU. Um, kind of, it, it might seem kind of far field from oceans, but it was in quantum mechanics and spectroscopy. Um, spectroscopy is basically hitting little atoms and molecules with lasers and seeing how they react, but you think about that's kind of how basically how our climate system works sure. um, and then I took after I graduated I took a position at NOAA uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in town and there I built aircraft instruments that measure um, aerosols in our atmosphere and, and cloud properties and how those contribute to climate change and then I did global climate modeling after that and then kind of getting more towards where I am today I ventured off into the nonprofit world so I Moved to DC and took a position as a climate scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, so it's a science advocacy organization. So I continue to do research. I've got to still be a scientist in quotes. Um, but now I was working much more at the policy and science interface. So having meetings on the Hill with members of Congress and other policymakers and really kind of talk through the, the science and impacts and solutions around climate change. Um, but my family got homesick for Boulder and we moved back here. And then I took a position with another nonprofit called Climate Central that's based out of Princeton. Similar work in that I covered a lot of the bases around all aspects of climate change, but they were non-advocacy. So they just wanted to really communicate compelling um, science to, to broad audiences. Um, and then more recently, as you mentioned, I've been doing independent scientific consulting work kind of across the board, not just in climate, but in a lot of different interesting areas. But really kind of we're talking about Ocean First and oceans today, how I came to Ocean First um, is my kids did swim school at Ocean First. And at some point I saw a flyer for Ocean First Institute, which we'll probably get into some more later. Um, right. But I saw, you know, the, the executive director's email. So I reached, reached out to Mickey and I said, hey, do you want to meet for coffee? And you know, just have a conversation about what OFI is and kind of my background and my interests in the ocean. And then it just kind of went from there. So uh, Mickey and I and, and the founder of Ocean First Graham kind of had an ongoing conversation. 
I came onto the board about a year or so ago. Um, and as we'll probably get into, I'm, I'm in addition to normal board active governance activities, I'm trying to help them build out their research presence and capabilities. Well, you've certainly been very busy and I'm really excited for this conversation. <laughs> um, I'm curious where your interest in the ocean stems from as someone who is from Kentucky. Yep, great question. Um, and one that's very relevant in what we're trying to do. Um, sure. So as a kid, we would go to, somehow we latched onto Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. So Beautiful. every summer my family would do the however 10 hour drive or whatever it is down to Myrtle Beach. So kind of early on I had an awareness or a connection with the oceans via just hanging out on the beach and doing some body surfing. Um, and then my grandfather lived in Florida, so we would we'd go there as well. So it was kind of very a, a superficial connection to the oceans for a long time, um, as it probably is with many people. Um, and then when I went to work at NOAA, I was doing climate modeling that involved the oceans. So how oceans take up heat, how they take up excess carbon dioxide, but really didn't get into the impact. So it's still kind of this, this somewhat abstract entity, I guess, in my mind. It was just this big physical system out there that could affect climate. But when I was at UCS, the Union of Concerned Scientists, one of my good friends and coworkers there was a marine biologist. Yes. Would you mind telling us a bit about the Union of Concerned Scientists so we know exactly what they do? Yeah, so it, it, it grew out of um, MIT, some uh, nuclear scientists, uh, basically wanting to bring robust science to bear on nuclear proliferation issues at the time. Huh. But it's since uh, grown out to working in food systems, clean energy, clean vehicles, and my program was climate and energy. So basically what UCS, Unit of Concerned Scientists, is trying to do is to bring you know, rigorous, robust science to bear on policy conversations and policy advocacy. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it was at UCS that my colleague and I started really having conversations about the ocean. Um, not just that it's this big heat sink that excess heat's going into, but really she was on the biology side. So we really took a dive, so to speak, <laughs> down below the surface. And you know, it was there where I really started gaining awareness of uh, not only how important the oceans are to our global society, um, but how they're being impacted um, by climate change, by pollution, overfishing. So her and I kind of started have, trying to have meetings with members of Congress and their staff <clears throat> to really trying to bring this more to the forefront of, of conversations. Um, she ended up leaving, I got onto other things, so it sort of unfortunately died off. And you know, that's, mm -hmm. I think, kind of been a trait with a lot of Ocean's work is that for whatever reason, it, it kind of remains on the back burner or off to the side of, of you know, conversations around the environment. It's like um, another world. It is. And that's, I think that's part of the problem is that, um, you know, it's really easy for you or I to get in our cars and drive west on I-70 and say, see, you know, all the tree die off from the bark beetles, or you can see burn scars. You only have to live through a, you know, a hot summer and heat waves to kind of get that sense a very tangible, hey, change is happening in my backyard. Whereas under the you know, ocean, it's most people, unless you're in the ocean, you don't have an awareness of what's going on 200 feet below the surface. Um, so it's always, although it's ubiquitous, it's, you know, 70% of our, our, our surface, 97% of the water, it still stays in the background. 
Um, people literally only ever see the surface in those cases. Sure. Is, is it not, is most life on earth actually in the ocean or is that not right? Um, I don't know what the numbers are. I, I, it's, I mean, you get, you got to get into how you define life, you know, with virus and bacteria and all that, but sure, sure, sure. Uh, there enough. is a great deal of it. And, you know, one of the really interesting things I came across is that most of it is still unexplored. I, I forget right. what the number is, but like 80% of the oceans have not been mapped. They haven't been measured. Um, so it really still is this big unknown. Um, and in a lot why do you cases. think that, why do you think that is? It's because it's not like habitable for us. So we have no interest in it or something like that. I think it's just, it's tough to explore. It's expensive. I mean, like I said, you or I could go off into the Indian peaks wilderness and explore the forests and ecosystems there. It's more of a challenge to explore many parts of the ocean. Um, it takes really specialized equipment, you know, deep sea subs, things that aren't accessible to most people. Um, and again, I, I think it's kind of, and again, I, I should say that, you know, all, all these opinions are my own. I'm, they're not ocean firsts, um, but I hope I'm kind of accurately representing what they would perhaps say. But, um, it, but yeah, I, I think it's that it's just, it, it was always, I think, viewed as too big to fail. Um, in that, what, what, in what exactly? The oceans. Too big it, to fail. It, okay. Yeah. Like, like, you know, the banks uh, in 2008. Um, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, it's, it was viewed as too big to fail that we could just kind of not pay attention to it, that it would, con, you know, give us the fish we need, um, mm. give us all the services and we could just continue dumping everything into it. And it was so massive that it just wouldn't change. And so I think that's part of it is that it was perceived as something that humans couldn't really impact. Um, so maybe it wasn't worth studying in as much detail as, you know, say, agriculture fields or forests. Um, but I think, you know, kind of an important change over the past few years is now it's being viewed as too important to fail. That we are studying it more. Scientists are starting to understand not only how it's being impacted by global change, but everything it provides. I forget the number exactly, but it provides something like two and a half trillion dollars in services every year globally. Wow. It provides livelihoods for millions of people, recreation opportunities, um, you know, even medicines and pharmaceuticals come from it. So I think there is growing attention towards the oceans and we're learning so much more about it. Um, so I hope that's, that's a, you know, a trend that will continue. And part Definitely. of our work at ocean first is to keep, keep pushing that. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about it's it's just a, it's just a huge topic the ocean that it's so like glossed over because we're just like you said we don't see it we hardly know anything about it why should someone who kind of how, how does the ocean really affect us on a day-to-day -day level as far as like the system interacting with our you know our surface life right well i mean a big part is, is through its effects on weather and climate um, sure you know, the earth would be a very different place if we didn't have oceans in terms of, of our climate. So in, in one sense, it's, it provides all the, you know, basically all the water for any precipitation we have. So snow falling in Boulder at some point likely was evaporated from the ocean. So it play, and it, it keeps, you know, areas like England uh, more temperate than it normally would be otherwise based on its latitude. Coastal areas, you know, it's milder, less swings in temperature. 
but on the other hand, it provides fuel for hurricanes, ocean heat does. Um, so it, it, so someone, you know, embedded kind of in the middle of the U.S., it, it might seem a little far field, but it does have major impacts on global weather patterns. It also, I, I mean, a lot of people in Boulder and Colorado and Iowa eat fish. I mean, they, they, they rely yeah. in some way on marine life, healthy food webs in the oceans for some of their protein. Um, so there's that, but it's, you know, it, but you raise an interesting point. It's, you know, I kind of sometimes frame the questions, how do you get someone to care about the oceans that lives in Indiana? Or something they can't see, yeah. Yeah, and, and it it gets into a bigger, you know, conversation about that we're kind of embedded in a highly coupled complex earth system. It's one yeah, system. Yeah, definitely. So everything's interacting, and again, the oceans, 70% of the earth's surface, they play a large role in millions of lives directly. Mm-hmm. Maybe not yours or mine every day being in Colorado, but you know, all the coastal fisheries, all those communities, uh, tourism, I mean, it just, you know, we could go through this, but it, it really, the conversation should be around is, you know, how central it is to a functioning earth system that you know, society everywhere in some way relies upon. And what kind of measurable effects are we seeing as far as the way the ocean system is changing based on the increase in the temperature that we've been seeing over the last few decades? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the one of the, the biggest things is heat uptake. Um, so scientists can measure how much heat the ocean contains. Um, and I forget, again, I'm going to kind of throw out some broad numbers here, but, you know, of course. the ocean since 1970 has taken up, I think, 400 times the amount of energy all of humanity uses each year. That's a really big number. Um, So, you know, something like kind of, so, you know, of the heat that's being trapped by our our emissions, 90% of that is going into the earth or going into the oceans. So there's a major temperature increase there. On the other hand, you know, kind of the, the evil twin of carbon emissions it's called as ocean acidification. So not only is heat from our activities going into the ocean, but also excess CO2. So of you know, CO2, carbonic acid. Yeah. So of carbon dioxide that comes out of your tailpipe of your car or coal-fired plant, about a third of that goes into the ocean. Roughly a third, you know, is taken up by forests in the biosphere on land, and the other third remains in the atmosphere. So it's really has been providing a big break on climate change otherwise um, that a lot of people don't appreciate. Um, but those are the big impacts right now that we can measure the heat and you know the acidifying waters. But then kind of more importantly, th- those are just kind of the physical things, but that has big implications for the biology under the sea. So one of the, maybe the hallmarks of impacts to oceans right now are coral reefs leaching and dying. I was going to ask about that. And wh- yeah. why are coral reefs, reefs important? Well, they've been termed the rainforests of the sea. So mm-hmm. again, a, a large majority of life in the ocean depends on healthy coral reefs in some way. Um, so they kind of provide a, a keystone species that sets up a lot of you know, healthy food webs, healthy ecosystems around it. So they're absolutely critical right now to life as it's currently organized in the oceans. Uh, but what we're seeing again is they kind of are being impacted by this double whammy of warming waters and acidifying waters. Mm-hmm. So corals get their color from these small algae that kind of live symbiotically on them. So 
the algae, you know, the coral itself is, is kind of a hard structure and it provides a home um, for these algae. The algae in turn provide nutrients to keep the coral healthy. Unfortunately, when the waters get too warm, um, these algae turn toxic and the coral expel them. So now they've lost their food source and they're more susceptible to disease, starvation. Um, if those you know, warming events continue, they can end up dying. Um, I've seen them. I've yeah. actually been to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and went scuba diving and most of it's just bleach white over there now. It is, it is. Um, and so there's that aspect. And then the acidification issue is how corals are able to build their skeletons. So as you mentioned, they rely on, on carbonate ions. So they use calcium carbonate to actually build their skeletons. And unfortunately is that when more CO2 goes into the ocean, it, it acidifies the waters, it changes the whole chemistry. So basically it, it, it makes it harder for corals to build their skeletons. And even if waters get acidic enough, or more acidic, um, they, the skeletons can actually start dissolving. So, yeah. and as you mentioned, yeah, that's, I mean, we talked about that there's maybe a lack of awareness, a lack of kind of tangible impacts, which maybe this is why it's off people's radars. Um, and so, you, yeah, you can see pictures of before and after shots and, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Actually being in the water and going back to a reef that you loved diving in 10 years ago and it's completely changed. I mean, in that case, the firsthand experience is probably worth a million words. And so that's one of the challenges is that it's easy for people, relatively easy for people to go to the beach. It's much more difficult for them to dive in the Great Barrier Reef. So that's yeah. just one indicator that unfortunately these major ocean impacts are still really remote for most people. Mm -hmm. What kind of work are we seeing from like Ocean First? What exactly do they, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization, is that right? What exactly are they doing to support ocean health? Yeah, so yeah, that probably needs some, some explanation. A little so, bit. Ocean First itself, I, I think it started in around 2005. And so it started as a dive shop, as, as people may think of it, as traditional dive shops. But it really kind of started with a grounding vision of, wanting to not only build a community of divers, you know, getting them certified and taking them out on trips, but really building a community of ocean stewards. So really from almost day one, as I've been told, um, they really had this notion of keeping oceans healthy in mind in addition to the recreation side. So they really wanted to build you know, their community around a sustainable and healthy ocean. So that was ocean first, kind of the, the dive and swim school. And then at some point, uh, the education side got into it. So we were talking about how do you get someone in Indiana to care about the oceans? Mm -hmm. So they realized that not only, you know, training divers and sustainable practices is needed, but also kind of a broader awareness. So, you know, it, it might be you know, strange or paradoxical, but I'm actually not a diver. I'm not certified. That's fine. But, Oh yeah, yeah. Not not apologizing. I have like a I have like a patty certificate. Like the first time you went, you go with like a guy, and they give you like you did your first dive. Right. I don't know if that doesn't really count. In Hawaii, called snuba, where you don't need to be certified because your air supply stays on the surface. But but anyway, so you know, I think you know my my personal example is that you know I think Ocean First wanted to build its community out more broadly, 
mm-hmm. beyond just certified divers who were going on five trips a year, but recognizing that ocean stewards could be found you know, throughout the community. So yeah. part of that was recognizing the importance of education. So Ocean First started Ocean First Education, which is a for-profit arm that develops uh, digital curricula for for schools and, and, and other dive shops. So recently I just developed a course on oceans and climate. That's really maybe, cool. Yeah, but then there was kind of another recognition between the founder um, who'd been working with the executive director for a number of years on education issues that they really wanted more of kind of a quote unquote boots on the ground presence Yeah. Uh, in, in classrooms, uh, primarily focusing on K through 12. So whereas Ocean First Education was kind of, you put it out online and you know, whoever wants to, to engage with it can. Ocean First Institute, which I'm on the board of, really had in mind to directly engage more with, with students, with K through 12 students, as well as um, focusing on research. So, you know, so it's kind of a combination of um, Ocean First, you know, kind of the family, doing things like zero waste events, um, so, you know, being powered by renewables, um, trying to limit plastic use, you know, making sure that they're- Leading uh, by example. Leading by example, basically. So, you know, putting their, um, their practices, you know, where their mouths say they are. And I think that's really, I think where they're having a big impact. So um, really building out this knowledgeable community from really K on up to, you know, retired divers and trying to get them to really, in some ways, internalize what's, why the oceans are so important, what's going on with them and what they can do. And then, as I said, kind of, you know, on the ocean and research side. So we're also, uh, one of the things I'm doing with them is, again, as I said, trying to build out more of a defined research program where we can bring in scientists from around the world, you know, postdocs, grad students, or whatever, and have them start doing some real scientific research. But research that we can then use to hopefully raise awareness around ocean issues, perhaps, you know, a few steps removed influence policy and planning in some way. Yeah. What what sparked your entry into this nonprofit world? I'm very curious because the way I see this huge surmounting challenge, and obviously I'm trying to learn more about it every single week, is I kind of am thinking about it in three buckets as like policymakers and then people on the ground. That's kind of what I see the nonprofits as. And then I Mm -hmm. see this kind of middle space where it's like the corporations and the businesses. And I'm kind of obviously been leaning into that. I'm just curious how you, you decided to start working with nonprofits in particular. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess kind of volunteer work's been in my blood for a number of years. Um, so in college, I started engaging with Sierra Club, mostly on public lands issues. And when I moved to Colorado, I was uh, the wilderness chair for the Rocky Mountain chapter here and, and was on a national wilderness and wildlands team. So I had really done a lot of volunteer policy relevant, uh, policy related work around environmental issues for a long time. And then I got involved with another nonprofit here in town called Wildlands Restoration Volunteers. So as the name says, we do a lot of ecological restoration work from you know, invasive species removal on Boulder Prairie to um, rehabbing wetlands in the high country. Thank you. So kind of, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, 
in addition to Ocean First, WRV is really a great organization too. We're just down. We need we need everyone in it, and we just don't have enough people working on these issues. We do, and you know, I think your your buckets are kind of a good way to look at it. Um, then you know, I I do. There are some exceptions, but I, I view the nonprofits as really the people who are on the ground. Yeah, um, for sure. So they're they're the ones. And again, I'm painting in, in probably two broad brushstrokes, but it's, as we it's do to, to make people understand just yeah. like that's how we communicate, you know? Right. So I, I kind of view nonprofits as they're the boots on the ground. They're the ones engaging with the local communities. They're the ones with, you know, shovels in the dirt doing stuff. And so I, I do see, you know, I worked at NOAA for a while, so I do see value more in, in the, the policy world, you know, mm-hmm. the federal, federal and state governments on down. Um, I, I think industry, private sector has a huge role to play and that's growing. Um, but intellectually, where my heart resides has always been kind of on, in the nonprofit bucket, I guess. It feeds the soul more. I'm just, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm just, I really love all the work that these nonprofit organizations I've been connecting with and speaking to, but I, I really, I'm just not satisfied. I want like intense action today and the only way i can kind of see that i think is is i'm not saying i don't support grassroots organizations i think all the work they're doing is great i appreciate all the volunteers and all the stuff everyone's doing but i it's just we're like i feel like we're already too late and i want more action so that's what i'm doing with my real estate business and i want to inspire other people to find a way to incentivize people economically to work on these issues and work on them very aggressively and i'm i'm with you um Climate, and I've thought through this before, climate, at least from what I've been able to think through, is, is unique among any challenges humans have faced in mm. their history in that it gets harder to solve or manage whatever verb the you want to put on do. it. The less we do it and the longer we wait. Mm. So it really is kind of a, a ticking time bomb there. So I'm, I'm with you on that. We need, we're behind. We're, I mean, there's no other way to put it. We're behind on, on what we need to do. Um, and that's why I think there is value still in local action. Of course, of and course. I, I, used to be, I used to be a cynic when it came to voting. Um, so I didn't vote in the few, first few elections that I, was, I could because I thought it's one vote. What does it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen that, you know, voting in, a lot. Yeah. in a particular <laughs> direction, um, supporting you know, policy in a particular direction, it can add up. So I really think that it's got to be, you know, kind of a bottom up. So that's where where I am, I think. And and not all nonprofits are bottom up, but ones I've been involved with by and large have been. But I think there's also a big need on the top down aspect Mm -hmm. of it. So when we talk about the oceans, um, you know, some reefs are doing pretty well. And they can come back, right? Even if they they're bleached, they can, they can come back. Yeah, and, and so, you know, there's been some really great work. There's one called a bright spots analysis that looked at where reefs are doing well. And a lot of it has to do with local activities. So, you know, taboos against overfishing or limited pollution, things like that. So you can imagine that a remote pristine reef might be doing okay. Mm-hmm. But then on top of all that, it is continued climate change so you could limit continued you know, warming run, yeah runoff pollution you could limit overfishing but still everything in the oceans having to contend with a warming climate so that's where local action like you know appliance efficiency modes of transportation can help 
But realistically, to really make a dent in this issue, it's got to be also some sort of, in my opinion, some sort of major top-down initiative. So that's that where I'm starting more, to think as yeah, well. Yeah, and so that gets into kind of your other two buckets, I think, where nonprofits can have a role and do have a role. The bigger ones do, like you know, World Wildlife Fund and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it's really where I think the private sector can play a role and where governments absolutely, they have to. They have absolutely to play need a role. to play a role. So I, I, you know, I'm kind of a walk and chew gum kind of guy. So I, I, think <laughs> that, I think that there is value. There is a need for action at all levels. Um, but we're not, I mean, it's not, you know, we're not going to solve these issues, it's, you know, from not only climate change, but global pandemics, yeah. You know, malnutrition, food security, across the board, all these, you know, global change issues. It's, you know, the solutions are going to come at a number of layers. And so I personally just chosen to throw my, my hat in with, you know, kind of the nonprofit effort. Um, but that's not at all to devalue any of the other buckets. I think no, of course. And, and the work all these organizations are doing is incredible. I just want a lot because obviously I'm a very young person and what I wanted to just bring up is that I had read your you had a recent interview on William A. Liggett's website that is that, is that mm. how it's pronounced yeah Bill and yep. Bill and I was very it's very interesting just the idea that the reality of the situation is the warming we're dealing with today was caused like 30 40 years ago and the warming we'll be dealing with in 30 40 years is being caused today so i don't know how do we deal with this reality that it's just it's a system so there's you put the input in today and it comes out like a decade later how can we get people to conceptualize we need to take action today because we're already 30 years behind you're like, I, you're like, I don't know, man. That's, that's, <laughs> Talk that, about well, it. No, 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 no. That, I, I'm not kind of blowing it off. That's the multi-trillion dollar question, right? Sure. It's, um, you know, one way I say it is, you know, think about it is most people, if you offer them, okay, I'll give you $10 today or I'll give you $100 in 20 years, most people would take the $10 today. Mm -hmm. so it's, As they so, should because of time value should. money. Yeah, yeah, but I think it kind of gets to the notion that the future is heavily discounted. Uh -huh. Like impacts that are here today, um, economic stability that's here today. A lot of people, a lot of decision makers, it, it kind of puts them in a frame of mind that the problem, the climate scale problems, the multi-decades, although a lot of impacts are here today, they're kind of in some sense too far off to really be meaningful. Yeah. So it, it's just kind of how people think about risk and, and in the future really is that, you know, future risk that's uncertain and far off is it's hard to get your head around and throw a lot of energy and resources into it. One of the things I like that you said in, in that interview is that uh, it's, it's very essential to be talking about these issues with, with friends and family. What, do you, what kind of impact do you think that will have as far as getting action? I mean, it's just, and again, it, it doesn't, it may not get to your time scale that you're talking about needing action today, but yeah. it, it's, but it's kind of just a broad awareness of the issue and, and what can be done. I mean, you can think about, you know, I, I'm not going to age myself too much, but when I was growing up, recycling wasn't a, really a thing. No one did. Mm -hmm. But at some point, um, there was a tipping point in the system and now recycling is everywhere. It's something you don't give a second thought to. 
Yeah. Same way with, with something like gay marriage, for instance, that you know, mm -hmm. it was something that didn't happen, but at some point it tipped socially and now it's, it's much more widespread accepted. So I think, you know, having conversations with family, friends, neighbors, community members, and just kind of building that awareness that, Hey, we we're facing some serious challenges ahead and we need action today. If we want to have any hope of managing them, it kind of gets into that, you know, doing things that are climate friendly, friendly for the oceans, at some point just becomes the norm. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, I don't know if we have 30 years to wait for that to become the norm, but I think that's part of the motivation that, you know, we're highly networked people now. Um, most people are, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. So the modes of communication can spread out very quickly now, as opposed to say even, you know, 10 or 20 years ago when we're still writing letters to one another. So I think there's an economy of scale also in terms of just getting the word out um, and raising awareness. Yeah, there's also this this theory of like crossing the chasm. And I think we're, we're very close with like the technological adaptation curve where it's like innovators and then early adopters and then like early majority when you get from the early adopter to the early majority all of a sudden like like what you said with recycling all of a sudden like it's no big deal like everyone does it like that's what yeah. happens with mobile phones and stuff right so this is very interesting i guess yeah. um to, to give people kind of something to think about i'd like to talk about the effect that climate change is having actually in Colorado, because I know you're concerned about the availability of water and our, our water mm -hmm. systems and stuff. And I wanted to know if you could shed a bit of light about that. Yeah, I, I mean, Colorado in, in various ways, it's, it's a precipitation dependent state. Mm -hmm. uh, we rely on, on healthy snowpack to melt, you know, later in the summer and provide water to mitigate fire risk. Uh, so many communities are dependent on a healthy, you know, ski industry and snowboard industry and winter sports in general. Um, that's why, you know, had organizations pop up like Protect Our Winters, that people recognize that losing our winters as we've known it will have major impacts, uh, you know, not only economically, but as you said, for, for water availability to mitigate fire risk. Um, you know, we're seeing our forests changing in the high country. We've had, uh, it was very much a climate-driven um, bark beetle outbreak that has killed a lot of lodgepoles. Um, that can lead to increased fire risk. So um, drought episodes, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what the trend is in Colorado, but you know, the likelihood of longer and you know, more impactful droughts are there. What and then the heavy downforce, were, were you in, in, in Boulder in 2013 for that? No, it was a couple of years before my time. So yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, in some places it will be not enough water. Some places will be too much water. Colorado is kind of on the, the band of it can either be too much or too little. Yeah. And both can have really impactful negative outcomes. Is there, I'm curious because, because there's some who are, who are skeptical. The, the idea is that there's these more and more severe weather events occurring. And the idea is to relate that to climate change. Is there, is there any hard evidence for a claim like that, that, that because the temperature is going up, there's more severe weather events, droughts, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, all that kind of stuff? Can that it, be it proven? Yeah, it depends on the type of event, really. So heavy downpours, it's pretty well established just by basic physics that as air gets warmer, it can hold more water. So then when it finally, you know, think about a sponge, you know, this sponge fills up, 
a warmer climate is making that sponge bigger and able to hold more water. So when you finally wring it out, you're getting bigger water release basically. So the connection between heavier downpours and a warming climate is pretty well established. Um, I mentioned the importance of snow. Uh, we're seeing much more cold season precipitation coming as rain than snow. That's a direct temperature effect. Um, but then it, it droughts, yeah, again, a lot of droughts are now riding on higher temperatures. Um, so when you do have a lack of precipitation that can lead to a drought con condition, you've got a warmer, hotter atmosphere that just wants more of that water vapor from the surface. So there's a thing about you know global change type droughts where droughts that may have been typical in the past in terms of precipitation levels are now riding on higher temperatures and can make them more impactful. Um, hurricanes, there's still, you know, I think still some work to be done, but, but okay. basically, you know, from the physics is that hurricanes, once they get going, uh, need heat from warmer oceans to really kind of fuel them and keep them going. So, yeah. So the, the kind of the jury's still out, I think, on number of hurricanes that may be coming our way, but I think it's getting more solid that when hurricanes do spin up, the, the chances of them intensifying are greater just because they're, they're moving over now warmer oceans by and large. So not, so not every um, you know, extreme weather event is at this point directly connected um, to a warming climate, but a lot of the things that you kind of think about, like is my January precipitation coming as rain or snow, um, you know, heavy downpours, that stuff is pretty well established. And as far as wildfires go, is it the, the, the warmer the temperature gets, the more these fires will occur, which burns more carbon from the trees, which increases temperature even more. It's this like idea of this positive feedback loop, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, wildfires, they have some components. One is ignition. So how are they starting? So is it lightning or someone leaving their campfire going? But what a warmer, drier climate is providing is ideal conditions. So when a fire starts, it's more likely to spread. So, you know, you can just imagine that if you are looking at forests that it's hot and dry, it's going to be more likely to burn than a forest that you know, just is kind of wet and lush and green. So fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your work at the Aspen Global Change Institute, if you wouldn't mm -hmm. mind. Yeah, so Aspen Global Change Institute, it, it got started about, I think, 30 years ago or so now. So it spun out of John Denver's Windstar Foundation. Um, cool. And really, as, as the name suggests, it was initially kind of its main role or mission, I guess, in global change is to organize really high impact meetings across the global change board from how do we design the next round of climate modeling experiments to food security. Um, so really it was kind of a place for um, experts, practitioners, um, other stakeholders to really get in a room and not only talk about an issue, but really come out with something tangible from it. Um, but now AGCI is kind of growing to wanting also to not only organize and convene the science, but carry out some science for itself. So I'm kind of working with them um, in some capacity to start that phase of the organization is to actually do more of their own science. So they have a really neat soil moisture network in the Roaring Fork Valley around Aspen. Um, so basically, as, as the name suggests, it, it 
takes temperature measurement, lots of meteorological measurements, temperature, soil moisture at a range of elevations. So you really kind of get to see the effects of too much or too little rainfall or snow as, you know, as a function of elevation. So they've been measuring it, they have data, but now we really kind of want to broaden that out and actually start asking some research questions around that. And um, another area that I've been getting more involved with is uh, artificial intelligence applications to global cool. change issues. So it's kind of, COVID kind of got in the way, but I had been As it does, on, naturally. As it does, you know, the stray, <laughs> stray pandemic here and there kind of throws a wrench in things. But, yeah, wow. uh, yeah, but I was uh, in the process of trying to develop a workshop on, on how AI technologies could be used for biodiversity conservation. Um, so from how long have you been working on this? It's been a little over a year. I mean, it kind of got put on the side burner just for a number of reasons, but but I'm kind of really and and this is kind of some work I hope to do with Ocean First Institute too. Is awesome. How do we leverage not only you know AI machine learning technologies to think about address you know, problems that we care about like climate change or um, oceans, um, food systems, um, AI is finding a lot of applications in, in food systems and food security these days. So, so I'm, I'm kind of working both with AGCI and Ocean First Institute on, and again, AI won't solve every problem in every instance, but I'm kind of looking on how do we start the conversation around what might be applicable, what might be relevant, uh, what are some of the side of unintended consequences of you know, leveraging AI for some of these things we care about. So, I, so yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. That's really cool. Do you have any independent projects you're working on? You mentioned you worked as an independent scientific consultant. Anything else mm -hmm. on the side that you're researching? Yeah. So kind of in the recently, I'm working with a geospatial startup. Um, cool. Basically, what they're trying to do is make. Wait, hold on, hold on. What's a, what is a geospatial startup? It's it's um. You can think of it maybe as a, a, a tech startup in the traditional sense, but it's focused on geospatial Earth's, information. Which is, so, sorry, what? Geospace? It, Earth space? So um, basically data about the Earth. Okay. So geo and then, but it has a spatial component. So Business, you can yeah. think of, of satellite data. Cool. So something like Landsat that you know, moves over the Earth and measures um, you know, various wavelengths of what the surface looks like. Um, so what we're, so there's a whole host of, of satellite data out there that is doing things like measuring ice sheets, uh, measuring wildfire burn areas, vegetation die off, you name it. Um, so what this company is trying to do is make that access more accessible to a wide range of audiences. So mm -hmm. I think they say something like geospatial analysis without a PhD. So really trying to streamline this information, how to access it, how to analyze it, how to really use it to help answer questions you care about more accessible. Um, and then I, you know, as I said, I, I did this, um, this course, developed this ocean and climate course with Ocean First Education. Um, I taught some early career atmospheric scientists how to navigate the um, policy landscape more effectively. Um, I worked with the U.S. Forest Service recently, or a couple of years ago, on um, how to better assess watershed health on their lands, okay. like what sorts of indicators to use. Um, I've been involved with an ecological drought working group since we talked about drought earlier. Um, a lot of the times drought is framed 
kind of in terms of not enough water falling, how does it impact agriculture? But what we were doing is we wanted kind of more of an, you know, talking about raising awareness. We wanted to kind of raise awareness around the ecological side of drought, that ecosystems are heavily impacted by drought conditions. They can also moderate drought, they can affect it, and getting more, again, kind of getting more of a whole system view of drought um, that had mainly been focused on kind of the meteorological and agriculture side for a long time. That's really cool. So that those, those are just a, a few, and, and I was actually working on some um, air quality modeling in Colorado, in Northeast Colorado for a while too. So it's kind of been a range of things. Yeah, and Todd, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and discussing and, and just doing everything you've been doing because I think it's so important. And I'm just curious kind of to conclude here what you think someone who's, as you can tell it like me, very the opposite, our minds work in different ways. You're very into the science. I'm, I'm very not. How can someone like me get more involved in having an impact on these issues? Because as we've discussed, we all need to kind of get involved to actually make effective change. Right. Uh, I mean, first of all, as I've mentioned it a couple of times, awareness. I mean, yeah. the huge. fact that, that, that you're doing this podcast, um, that you are engaging with the scientists and other it's growing. experts. It's growing. It is. It, but but it's, it's so important. So, you know, I, I think trying to educate yourself, trying to figure out actually what's going on is, is such a critical first step. I mean, mm. if, you don't, if you don't know, you know, the details about an issue, it's really hard to accurately have conversations with others and get them fired up. Um, so I think the first step, and it seems like you've got it in spades, is, is really kind of educating yourself and finding out, yeah. you know, where the, and <laughs> I mean, another overlay is kind of our era of fake news and misinformation. I, mm -hmm. it's, it's so hard to navigate what you, these days, what you can believe and what you can't. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, and that, that's, you know, that, unfortunately that's a burden on the user. People like me try to help, I guess. And well, I prefer to do it through people because I can tell about from speaking to you that you have good character and I can trust what you're saying. Yeah. So that gets into just, you know, community civil engagement that if yeah. there's, um, like I said, I used to do a lot of public lands work and, you know, one of the things I was involved with is wilderness designation for Rocky Mountain National Park years ago. And just attending community events where you kind of hear all sides of the issue, lots of different values coming to it, that can be really useful too. Um, so I, I think, so there's that, that initial kind of gathering in, but really it's also determining what you really care about. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know, I obviously care about oceans and ocean health in addition to other things. So I've, de I've decided to, you know, invest a lot of my free volunteer time outside of parenting and whatnot to the oceans. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting to be a generalist. Like I'm interested in a lot of different things and I'd love to be involved with everything, but That's you know, I think it's also important for, for people to kind of zero in on what they are particularly attached to. Um, Cause then they can, also, then it's not even like working. It's just like having fun and doing what you love. It is. And you know, also at the nonprofit level, it's, you know, by and large, it's, it's tight budgets, um, overworked staff. So a lot of nonprofits really can use an engaged public that's willing to volunteer. So, you know, when I was with Sierra Club, one of the things that, um, really impressed me is how much they lean on their volunteers in the good sense of the word. 
they delegate a lot of responsibility to unpaid staff, to volunteers. Mm -hmm. I, I think with, you know, some good outcomes. So, you know, nonprofits, they, 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 need, they need people who are bought into their missions fully. And, you know, I guess there's a risk that you can spread yourself too thin, um, you Always. know, donating an hour a month or 10 bucks a month. It's, it's great. Um, but, you know, what a lot of nonprofits need are really dedicated long-term um, community members too. I mean, we saw that with the restoration nonprofit that we would, we would get leaders trained up and they would be amazing, but then they would be off, you know, they would graduate or whatever. Okay. And yeah, one last thing, cause this is kind of hot off the presses I wanted to mention is that Ocean First is opening a new discovery center next month at the dive shop. Uh, so it's going to be on the floor. We're going to you know, take out some of the, the dive showroom equipment and we're going to really have more of a hands-on um, interactive um, space for for kids and for their parents. So it's going to have, you know, we've got some coral reef tanks. There's cool. going to be some touch tanks, microscopes. So, you know, starting in January, this discovery center is going to open. And I think it's really going to make some of the, you know, interacting with the oceans as much as you can from Boulder, more, more of a reality. So um, for any of your listeners with kids or just interested themselves, you know, keep an eye out for that. Um, and where so is the shop located? It's on Bluff Street, 30th and Bluff. Cool. Um, uh, it's I forget what the yeah so it's Very it's cool. called Ocean First so Ocean so First the, yeah the Discovery Center it's it's something that um, came out of our thinking and how to deal with the pandemic and, and what sort of changes we maybe need to make as an organization so a very exciting new development we're all really really stoked for it yeah and as am I I'll, I'll have to go check it out so everyone go to Ocean First in January for a new experience and as you know we're all innovating during this crazy time so. Absolutely. We have to. Cheers to that. Yeah, I guess, you know, what I was saying is that that finding an organization or two that you really connect with and care about and giving them some of your time and other resources, it's, it's really valuable. So, you know, around climate, there are choices you can make in your life about how you choose to use energy, you know, transportation, things like that. Um, but again, kind of coming from you know, selling the value of nonprofits, they also can really use um, a strong volunteer community, a strong donor community around them as well. Yeah. And thank you so much for being part of that and for coming on this show. And I really, I look forward to bringing you back on again at some point because you're doing so many different things. And I really love to hear how this is all evolving. And I'd love to tell you about everything that I'm doing. And so Todd, it's really been a pleasure to have you, man. I really yeah, appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks, Ethan. I really appreciate the invitation and for you're all welcome. the work you're doing. Yeah. Maybe we can do an annual climate update or something. That like would that. be amazing. All right, Todd. Hope you have a great day. Thanks, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrboulder.com today.